0: Well, it's hard to imagine this time last week, we were talking about police moving in on blockades in Ottawa. Tonight, we're talking about Russian soldiers invading Ukraine. In between, we've talked about the Emergencies Act being, the inv- invocation being approved by parliament, then it's suddenly disappearing 48 hours later. Much has gone on since the last time we spoke to Tristan Hopper of the National Post. So I'm happy he's here tonight to chat. Tristan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I mean, one of the what are the things I found really interesting that you tweeted this week, and it's some—it's funny, it's something that Michael Chong and I had talked about during a pre-interview today, was the idea that while this seems very far away, this, this whole Russian invasion of Ukraine, and while we talk a lot about the Ukrainian diaspora in this country, the significant diaspora, Michael Chong was reminding me, and you reminded me today at a tweet as well, we border Ukraine, uh, we border Russia rather. Um, and it's something we should be concerned about on a far bigger level than just what's happening in Kiev tonight.
1: Yeah, yeah, because usually, I mean, the last version of this happening, you know, just military catastrophe sort of striking people far away uh, with Afghanistan. And I think it's fair to say for most Canadians, uh, you just look at Afghanistan, the buildings look different, the cars look different, the dress looks different. And you could say, well, that's that's what happens to countries that don't look like mine. But I mean, the scenes coming out of Kiev, uh, Kiev doesn't look all that much different than, you know, Edmonton or Calgary. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe, but I mean, generally speaking, it is a developed country that doesn't look too all too different from Canada. So there's that. And then also seeing sort of the international reaction to it. So you have a democratic, developed Western nation um, that is essentially just being conquered uh, like, you know, the last 100 years didn't happen. This is just an old style, um, you know, conquest by a neighboring state. And I I think there's a sense here in Canada that if that ever happened to us, the entire international community would just drop what they were doing to come save Canada. And what you're seeing is, uh, you know, Europe's going to put some sanctions in, but not all the sanctions. I mean, Germany is like, well, we don't want to cut off the oil and gas. That would be a pain. You know, Italy comes in like, well, we don't want to, you know, we still want to sell luxury goods to the oligarchs. So carve that out. So, um, I think it's not that far of a stretch. I mean Canada is a NATO member, so if we were attacked it would, you know, invoke Article five and et cetera. But you're essentially seeing the international community like, well, you know, we're we'll put the Ukrainian flag in our monuments and we'll feel bad about it, but we're not gonna do much beyond that. We're not even gonna adopt sanctions um that might actually have deleterious consequences for our own economy so um canadians we canadians like to think we have a everybody loves us and we have this major role on the world stage but i don't think it's too far of a stretch to think that if something similar was happening to canada you would have a similar reaction from a lot of these countries like well that's a shame but uh you know it's it's canada why uh, bother you know taking a hit to our economy over it
0: we should certainly be concerned about about the Arctic. I mean, it's something we just haven't talked about much at all of late. But you know, lots could these tactics that are being used in other parts of of, of Russia's frontier could certainly be used um, on our own to some extent.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the whole Arctic has just been, uh, yeah, it, it's been held down just because nobody really wants it. There's nothing of tremendously importance there, so. Uh, we can sort of like basically everything in Canada. We can just sort of phone in our security and then just hope for the best. But uh, yeah, if that ever became of strategic importance um, or if China or Russia, both of whom have, yeah, I mean, China just a few years ago launched the world's largest gas powered icebreaker. Um, you know, China is not an Arctic nation. Uh, this is, you know, this is an icebreaker it intends to use in other people's waters. Um, so yeah, if th- there was ever any kind of strategic importance up there, uh, yeah, if Russia just, you know, took Ellesmere Island, what are we going to do about it? Uh, the answer is nothing.
0: One of the things that I found fascinating today, of course, because it caught everyone's attention, it was one of those political things that everyone jumped on, was the idea of pulling Russian products off uh, government liquor stores in across this country. It happened in Ontario. Then it happened in BC. This was something that that you found that you were not a fan of, and and I was interested to, to know why. Because it's, it's, no, it's a no, no. I'm an not I,
1: I, The reason I I've, I've long you know I've gotten into a lot of trouble for this stance, but I, I don't like any stance. Uh, in which, so people say, well, you know, how could it hurt? Um, you know, even if it doesn't really accomplish anything, I mean, we don't expect that Putin's going to pull out because, you know, Canada's not buying Russian vodka. Um, but I'm always weary of doing things that accomplish nothing uh, because the risk is you feel satiated. Um, so we're seeing all this stuff happening to Ukraine, and I don't want a situation in which Canada says, well, we pulled all the vodka from the shelf, so, you know, that's the best we can do. No, there's a whole bunch of other stuff we could do, um, so I don't want anybody getting the sense of like you know we all that we all pulled together for Ukraine and did this you know completely pointless thing. and I also don't like when people pile on uh, this sort of trendy thing without even looking into whether it's actually going to work um, so that that's what I, I was seeing all these you know normally smart people all over social media, and you're seeing governments saying, yeah, yeah, we'll pull the Russian broadcast the shells and then there's a few things they. Not looking at, uh, and everybody's saying, "Well, the LCBO in Ontario—it's the world's largest buyer of liquor. It's, you know, it's going to hurt." So, how much Russian vodka do they actually bring in? They bring in a lot of vodka, but um, if you actually look at direct Russian products, there's not many of them. Um, so, you know, if, if you're going to do a policy, actually make sure it, it's going to be targeting and having an effect on the country you're trying to look at. And uh, yeah, and then there's also the issue of. Yeah, there's no Russian vodka on the shelves, but the way this works is the the Russian vendors have already been paid for this. So, um we're just going to have a bunch of Russian vodka that we've already paid Russia for, but we're going to not sell it. So basically, the lcbo itself is going to be taking a hit. Um so I I would compare it to um remember that diplomatic boycott we were going to have at the Beijing Olympics, everybody's, "Oh, okay." Well, we don't want to have a full boycott. That's a pain. So we'll just have the diplomatic boycott. That's what we're going to do. We're going to show China a diplomatic boycott. And then, if you actually looked into what is a diplomatic boycott, and some uh, reporter, I think, at the Globe and Mail did this, uh, they found out, oh, actually, diplomats don't really go to the Olympics. Um, the only one that Canada really ever sends, sometimes we send the governor general, but mostly it's just the minister of sports. So Yeah, we all got behind and everybody was, you know, supporting and, you know, arguing about this and House of Commons, diplomatic boycott, diplomatic boycott. And really, we kept one diplomat home, the Minister of Sport, and, you know, nobody really cares if that person goes to the Olympics or not. So it was openly an empty gesture. And I would say it was actually way, way worse than an empty gesture, um, because everybody thought, well, we showed China, we don't have to worry about, you know, other measures such as potentially a full boycott, which would have an effect. Um, Because we already did this diplomatic boycott um, without actually looking into the details that it just kept one person home, the minister for the, the minister, all the rest of the cabinet makes fun of (laughs)
0: <laughs> and certainly someone that no one missed at the Olympics. Um, no, you're right. One of the biggest, one of the issues we see and it's and, and you understand the human desire to try to feel like you're doing something, whether it's posting a Ukrainian flag oh, yeah. on your Facebook yeah. Yeah. profile. Yeah, yeah. Like I get it. I understand it, but you're right. A lot of times people sort of pile onto these things because God forbid, in the, like both in Ontario and in BC, you'll notice it was the official opposition who called for these, uh, the removal of Russian products, uh, Russian products from B- from liquor store shelves. Um so of course, if the government doesn't do it, then they have to justify why they didn't do it. So that becomes, that becomes, we have about a minute left before we have to come to break, but you're going to stay with us after the nine o'clock news. So that's great as well. But it, it is interesting. It just became quite political. And I suppose they said, well, why not? Let's just do it.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. Again, because I would compare it to whenever there's a major disaster, um, anybody who works in aid relief will tell you about this. You first have the disaster and then you've got the second disaster, and that's what they literally call it, of people sending dumb stuff to the disaster area, like teddy bears and stuff. And that's another thing of like, how could it hurt? Well, it can hurt because you're gumming up supplies in a disaster stricken area. So maybe you should actually think about whether what you're doing makes sense before just doing it because it makes you feel good.
0: I'm pleased to have Tristan Hopper of the National Post here with me tonight. We've been talking about events unfolding in Ukraine. Now let's just rewind the clock a little bit to events that unfolded in Ottawa, which by news terms, feels like a long time ago suddenly. Um, But it was quite the sight. I was really curious to know what you made of the end of the blockades and then the sort of the seesaw emergencies act uh, display that we saw earlier this week.
1: Uh, So I I mean, I I wasn't the only person to sort of look at uh, the the blockades and say, well, this isn't really what you, what the emergencies act was uh, designed for. Um, So I mean, when you looked at, um, you know, the existing police powers that are in place to clear a blockade, uh, it's in the criminal code that you can't block a highway. So since day one, you could have arrested uh, truckers and towed their vehicles. Um, You could have seized bank accounts. Actually, um, this didn't get a lot of press, uh, but there was actually just a citizens group who were tired of all the honking. uh, And I think they led a class action. I don't know the exact name of the suit to have accounts of convoy leaders frozen. And then just before the Emergencies Act was invoked or just after, uh, they actually got a court order to have those frozen. So all of the main things they're talking about, well, we need to be able to tow things. We need, you know, an excuse to arrest people. uh, We need bank accounts frozen. If you can do that by normal measures, why would you use emergency measures? Um, What with all the, you know, potential for abuse and, you know, weird precedents it sets and and all that uh, kind of thing. So it was particularly strange um when we basically crushed freedom convoy as you know satisfyingly as you can uh, crush any protest movement i mean we're talking about the organizers are still in jail um their trucks are towed away um the mayor of ottawa is openly talking about uh, selling them like oh we're just going to sell them to recoup the policing costs i mean the bank accounts are seized there isn't a single freedom convoy blockade anywhere Um, So by any metric, yeah, that's super crushed. So it was weird, even under those circumstances, you had Ottawa saying, well, eh, well, let's hold on to the Emergencies Act for another month. Uh, They were looking, before uh, Trudeau abruptly pulled it, he was looking for parliamentary approval to hold it in place for another four weeks, um, which didn't really seem like the actions of a government um, that, uh, you know, really was prepared to drop this as soon as they didn't need it anymore. I mean, if you were looking at an objective metric, Completely crushing Freedom Convoy, you know, into the grounds, that would seem to be the moment at which you could rescind the Emergencies Act if it was ever needed.
0: I'm sure none of us really uh, – people. Some, someone does know the answer to this, but what's your suspicion about why less than 48 hours after Parliament approved it in a historic vote, we talked about it, and an overwhelming vote at that, the NDP on side obviously with the Liberals, uh, the Liberals making it a confidence vote essentially. So even uh, you know, MPs like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith who were you know pretty divided about, about this were, were kind of forced to vote uh, for it. And then suddenly less than 48 hours, it's gone. It's gone. What do you make? What, what do you think? Uh, my that?
1: suspicion is that um, you had basically the, the Senate. Very rarely, the Senate actually does something for us. There's like four or five examples throughout Canadian history. And if you don't like the Emergencies Act, you could argue this is one of those things. I mean, the whole point of the Senate was uh, people are idiots. Uh, they elect fellow idiots to the House of Commons, so sometimes they're going to get you know uh, angry and emotional, and they're going to do dumb things. And you know, Emergencies Act, and you don't necessarily need it. That's you know. Maybe in hindsight, that's probably going to seem like a dumb thing. So you're the Senate's supposed to be a bunch of non-political actors who can just, you know, kind of you're go home Canada, you're drunk. Uh, we're not going to allow this. So if if it was ever the Senate's time to say uh, no, no emergencies act, this is probably it. So I think you had a move in the Senate. There you had some Liberal senators. Oh, what they, they don't call liberal senators, uh, independent senators who happen to have been appointed liberals and always vote for liberal initiatives or whatever. You had some of them who were actually breaking with this policy, speaking out against it. So the debates in the Senate were a bunch of senators saying, why do we need this again? That seems dumb. Um, so I think what was going, it was kind of on a fast track to be voted down in the Senate. And then Trudeau was in this weird position of like, oh, OK, well, it was voted down by the Senate. I just defended it two days ago. Uh, Now I have to defend it again. There's even less risk. This even seems more ridiculous. So uh, why not just pull it and avoid uh, avoid all that uh, political embarrassment?
0: Declare victory and pull the act and then pretend it never happened to some extent, although there will be a review of this.
1: (laughs) I'm going to keep this in mind. Um, I'm going to go right back to hating the Senate, but... Um, Yes, every once in a while, a bunch of boring seniors uh, who, you know, bring those special cushions into the, like, they actually do bring special cushions into the Senate because they don't find the existing chairs that are comfortable enough.
0: Every once in a while, you need them. Um, I want to ask, there's two other topics I wanted to cover. One was how badly do you think this has damaged Trudeau? So maybe we could spend a few minutes on that because it has been, one would think that if there were any, any vulnerabilities to his leadership heading into all this, that they must be even more vulnerable now. Ukraine aside.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every poll they put out uh, around this uh, is saying, you know, a huge majority of Canadians uh, absolutely hated that he just sat on his hands for two weeks. Uh, I, I think a majority, one poll we commissioned by Post Media, found that I think a majority of people thought he inflamed the situation. Not only didn't do anything about it, but he every time he made a speech, he's like, these are all white supremacists and Nazis and, you know, Canada hates them. Um, and, you know, refuses to sort of I'm not saying he should, you know, sit down and you know, give them a cabinet seat and you know, let them decide policy just because they brought a bunch of trucks to Ottawa. Um, but he was certainly treating them differently than he would have treated, I think, any other protest that you know, wasn't openly violent um, that had sort of settled in the Ottawa area. So you had that. So everybody hates him going up to the protest cause he's not doing anything. And then uh, you have him putting in the Emergencies Act. And there actually was wild approval for the Emergencies Act, you know, 60 to 70 percent in most polls, uh, but still hating Trudeau, even though he put in the Emergencies Act, because they hated him that it came to this point. Everybody was saying, well, I like that the Emergencies Act is going to dismantle the truckers, mostly because I just hate the truckers, that we have rolling blockades doing hundreds of millions of dollars damage to the economy. Anything that ends it is great. Uh, but I hate that it had to come to our most crisis form of legislation, and I'm going to blame the government for that. So on both ends of these things, uh, yeah, he doesn't come out great. And we're seeing some dismal numbers uh, in some areas. We had, uh, yeah, one one poll conducted for post-media, 16% of people saying they were likely to vote based on the events of the last four weeks, uh, just saying, you know, if, if this is the government, I'm not uh, interested in it. So, Uh, Yeah, wasn't great going into this already at approval ratings as low as like, you know, 33, 35%. So I can't imagine uh, they're any higher and, you know, could be significantly lower.
0: We have a couple of minutes left here. I wanted to ask you about the attack on the coastal gas link pipeline, because you did mention it, and uh, it goes back a while now. We're actually going to talk about it in the next segment. Uh, but what did you make of that? And the prime minister was, was quite quick, or at least the government was quite quick to acknowledge that it had happened. Uh, but that was a strange attack.
1: It was, yeah. So it was about 20 people. Um, everybody had their own conspiracy theory about it. Uh, you know, left, right, environmentalist, Everybody um so this is basically coastal gasoline camp this is uh building um you know so this was the rail blockade two years ago it's the exact same pipeline uh so 20 people just sort of emerge out of the woods they're all wearing painters outfits or some kind of white jumpsuit and they just start attacking trucks uh they have axes um and then people are looking at the damage and this is equipment tipped over this was you know portables ripped open and they're saying well how can 20 people with axes do that i will remind people Um, that it was only a few weeks ago um, that you had activists, uh, protesters commandeering equipment. They would you know, hot wire or, you know, the postal gasoline just left the keys in the ignition. They would take heavy equipment and then use it to blockade roads. Uh, Remember just before the BC floods in early November, um, there was a a camp with about 500 people in it who couldn't get out uh, because the roads had all been dug up by protesters. So there is some precedent to, uh, you know, coastal gasoline demonstrators hijacking heavy equipment. And if you have a bulldozer that's rogue, yeah, you could do a few million dollars damage to a camp, no problem. So um, I think it's highly plausible that 20 motivated people did this. Um, We don't know who they are. Nobody has claimed responsibility. All the usual suspects are saying, eh, it wasn't us. Uh, Even the, you know, hereditary chiefs who, um, these protesters, well, these uh, attackers are, are essentially doing it in their name. Uh, they're actually having more conversations with the the elected leadership of the Waites Waiten, uh, who are always in support of this pipeline and have hated um, how this community, how, how all this uh, you know outside pressure has sort of divided them. So you're seeing sort of more dialogue between um, the faction of the community who doesn't like the pipeline and the faction who does. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how I make of it. So yeah, if you're a, if you're the typical sort of Western Canadian uh pro oil, pro oil and gas type there's a lot of uh you know a lot of opportunity over that attack to say well we needed the emergency act to deal with truckers and then we have this like you know shadowy attack in the middle of the night on a coastal gas link and we'd never talk about extraordinary legislation for that um you know and we we probably also assume um I mean, there's been similar things like this uh, you know blockades um of of, of equipment uh, you know attacks on equipment uh, you know sabotage whatever and it's very rare anybody sees charges for it. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a cynicism here where it's like, well, when something happens to Ottawa, you know, it's all hands on deck. We've got to deal with it. But uh, yet another attack on a uh, gas camp, um, whatever. That's something that happens in the hinterlands, and you don't have to worry about it.
0: Justin Hopper, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Have a lovely weekend, and thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts tonight. Thank you.